Hey, everyone, and welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. Uh, this is Larry Mishkin of the Hoban Law Group. I'm here today with my co-hosts, Jim Marty and Rob Hunt. Uh, we have a very, very exciting show for you today. Uh, we've got a lot to cover with the Grateful Dead. We've got some fish stories to tell. And uh, we're very, very excited because we have a, a wonderful guest with us, uh, Andy Bernstein, who's the executive director of Headcount. And um, the fact that he uh, is going to join us on our show is a great thing as well. Uh, let me start off by saying hi to uh, Jim Marty uh, in Colorado. Jim, how are you doing today? Very good. It's a nice day here in Colorado. Uh, looking forward to uh, talking about some of the uh, upcoming uh, shows that have been announced. Excellent. And uh, from sunny California, I'm sure uh, he'll tell us otherwise. We have Rob Hunt. Uh, Rob, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, guys. Uh, weed is on fire in California these days, so it's uh, lots to cover in the cannabis industry and lots to cover, obviously, in Grateful Dead world. Um, but before we got started, you know, Larry, I, I want to take just a quick minute um, before we, we jump in with Andy to let all of um, our listeners out there know just how terribly saddened we are uh, hearing of the passing of Steve Fox. Um, Steve was probably more instrumental uh, in changing cannabis laws than almost any other person I can think of in the world. Uh, you know, co-author of Amendment 64 in Colorado, uh, the founder of VS Strategies in Colorado with the Vicente Steerberg Law Team, uh, as well as being, you know, kind of our lobbyist on the ground for the entire industry in D.C. for, you know, going on 10 years now. Um, you know, I had a chance to get to know Steve pretty well. I think Jim did as well. And anyone that spent time with Steve will tell you that he was a spectacular person. And he um, was more effective at what he did in changing laws in our country. So everyone out there that's smoking weed today legally, uh, you owe a great deal of, of gratitude uh, to the work that Steve Fox put in on your behalf. And um, he'll be truly, truly missed. Yes, uh, Steve was a good friend of mine. <clears throat> uh, quick Steve Fox story uh, that I had heard is back in the early 1990s, there was virtually no legal marijuana anywhere in the United States. And he and another fellow were walking across the mall in Washington, D.C. and brainstorming and said, hey, what about a medical angle? And now here we are. <laughs> yeah, and if you read, he, he co-authored a book that was called Safer that really encapsulated what his uh, belief was relating cannabis as a, you know, how safe it was by comparison to alcohol. And why is it that, you know, alcohol companies are most pushing alcohol in this country when there's a safer alternative out there and it's been right in front of us the whole time. So if anyone out there has not read Steve's book, Safer, I encourage them to do so. Uh, it'll certainly give you a real insight as to who he was and what he thought. Uh, and again, you know, thank you to Steve Fox for, for everything he did for me and for us. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's great to mention him, Rob. I'm glad you brought that up. Uh, you know, uh, I'm not as familiar with all the stuff uh, that, that you've been talking about, but I do know enough about this industry to know that I liked Steve because uh, he was doing a lot of good things for the industry, but he put the industry first. He wasn't a self-promoter. He wasn't out there to make a, a, you know, fame and fortune for himself. He was more concerned with the, uh, you know, the true underlying goals uh, that we're all working for on a regular basis. And it was uh, because of the groundwork and the stuff that he did uh, that we are where we are today. Jim, that's a great story about medical coming out of nowhere. And, uh, um, you know, th there's a lot of patients out there who I'm sure are eternally grateful for that uh, brainstorm that he had at that particular moment. Yes, very good. So on um, more happier notes, the second weekend of Playing in the Sand has been announced. Which is great news. Uh, my only concern is that it's going to be sold out again, you know, before, uh, you know, before I can get to my computer to, to re-register. It's, uh, it's just amazing to me how quickly the first one sold out. Because in past years, although I've, I've always known it to be a, a popular event, 
I didn't necessarily know it to be, you know, like a must-see type of event, given how much Dead & Company was otherwise touring. But if you think about it, this is going to be the perfect situation, right? Everybody breaking out of the pandemic, a chance to go to Mexico, a chance to see the dead, a chance to hang out and, you know, really get out of your system. I guess it, it shouldn't be surprising at all that it's sold out so fast. Well, we'll see. Um, so I was waitlisted last week, so I should have priority for this next go around. Larry, were you waitlisted as well? I was. So we'll see. Yep. You know, if it happens, it happens. If it doesn't, doesn't. Maybe we'll be able to get uh, press passes and do the Deadhead Cannabis show down there. That would be fun. I'd love to interview Big Steve. Yeah, that would be great. He's an exciting guy. Look, just to be somewhere nice and warm and have a chance to go see the boys standing in the sand. The closest I ever got to that was my first dead show ever at the Ventura County Fairgrounds, which is practically on the beach, but not quite. But close enough that you could see the, the ocean in the background over the stage if you looked carefully, you know, when Jerry was bending in a certain direction or something. So uh, I was always inspired by that and always hoped to go back to uh, to that type of a situation. So that would be a lot of fun. Another musical note. And it's just rumors at this point. I think it's firming up that uh, we might get as many as five fish shows over Labor Day, five shows over seven days is the rumor. Well, that's a a great segue because if we've got someone out there that might know the answer to some of these questions, uh, (laughs) let me introduce to you our guest this week. We've got Andy Bernstein, who, as uh, Larry mentioned earlier, is the executive director of Headcount. Uh, Andy and I have been buddies now for, for quite a few years, and I did a lot of work with Headcount back when I was kind of coordinating a lot of festival to um, major festivals where I was the person that was, you know, moving people in and out to decide where their, their tents were going to be located. So not necessarily with Andy directly, but with the Headcount team for, for multiple years. And uh, they're always one of my favorite organizations to work with because their message was so unbelievably positive of let's get people in the, can- in the, in the music industry. Um, are fans of music out there and registered to vote. So when you want to think about how to change the tide of cannabis legislation, um, there's no better group to do it than uh, fans of jam band music and primarily Andy's organization would work with a lot of the biggest jam bands and all the biggest festivals. And uh, at the time, I think, Andy, you shared an office with the Relics team. Is that right? Back, uh, back in the day? And- back in the day, as in until the pandemic. Yeah, we've been there for 10 years and... Uh- in Manhattan, uh, Pete Shapiro, who owns Relics, among many other things, is our board chair. So we've been working out of that space for over a decade. Which means that Andy has always had his finger on the pulse of everything that's happening in jam bands, whether it's in New York at Brooklyn Bowl or at you know the Porchester Capitol Theater or at any major festival. So I don't know, Andy, can you confirm Jim's uh, rumors that five nights in uh, in Colorado at the end of end of summer? The only thing I can confirm is if it happens, I'll be there. <laughs> that's all you need to know awesome well well andy why don't you tell us a little about headcount because i know you've done a, a really cool canvas voter initiative and uh we'd love to hear more about it and love to hear how we can get involved and how we can broadcast more information to our listeners not just on this podcast but on others uh whatever we can do to be supportive tell us what you got going on we'd love to hear about it sure thank you gentlemen for having me on i really do appreciate it and it's great to be able to talk about this topic because a lot of people know Headcount, but might not know the Cannabis Voter Project, which is a really important initiative of ours. Uh, for people who don't know us at all, so Headcount, we started back in 2004. Um, we were inspired by a Hunter S. Thompson quote. He said, if every deadhead in Florida had voted, the world would be a different place. <laughs> I was talking about the 2000 election. And so we started you know, with very humble like kind of vision. Where it was like, well, let's get people to go to the same concerts that we're going to voting. And I, I reached out to my friend, I had the idea, I reached out to my buddy, Mark Brownstein, who a lot of your listeners probably know uh, of the Disco Biscuits. Mark and I grew up together. And so we started it together. 
And within about a month, we were reading that Bobby Weir was kind of talking a lot about voting and it had become important to him. Um, so we got Al Schneer of Mo involved and Al reached out to Bobby and Bobby joined our board of directors. So one of our real founders is Bobby, as well as Peter Shapiro, uh, folks like Andy Gadiel from Jambase, um, Jonathan Schwartz, who a lot of people know from Fish Radio. We, we were all friends and we just kind of got this together and said, all right, let's let's get people voting. So that first year, 2004, we were all volunteers. Honestly, we didn't know what we were doing. And we registered nearly 50,000 voters that year. And we did we shot commercials, public service announcements with the dead who were touring that summer with Warren Haynes. Um, and we got those on network TV. We also had Dave Matthews and Trey Anastasia in them. And that was year one. It was like crazy. It was like, oh, my God, what did we just do? It was really like kind of nuts and very, you know, in the Grateful Dead spirit, like very, very grassroots. Um, but we were at every dead show that summer. We'd send people around in a van. The Rex Foundation gave us our first grant to help pay for that. And um, and we just started growing the organization from there. Um, this past year was our best ever. Even though there were no concerts, we did it all digitally. We registered over 400,000 voters and we registered our millionth voter total. Um, and then, as you mentioned, another thing we started it was the Cannabis Voter Project. And that started, I think, in 2018. Just with the basic idea that, hey, let's do in the in the cannabis world what we've done in the music world. We know that cannabis voters have a lot at stake and that cannabis voters are a voting block that maybe people don't recognize. People know like there's gun rights voters or anti-gun voters or all those blocks. What about the cannabis voter? We have more at stake in this than anybody because, you know, voting on referendums or, or the legislators who will support cannabis is the difference between it being legal and not being legal. It's the difference between potentially going to jail for consuming a healthy plant or not. So we started something called, we started a website called CannabisVoter.info, and it lists where every uh, member of Congress stands on seven different cannabis issues. You can also register to vote there, and you can speak out directly to a cannabis, uh, to a legislator. We encourage people to just ask people where they stand and have that dialogue. And you can do it with your state and local elected officials who will actually usually answer their emails themselves. And you can do that on our website. So CannabisVoter.info, um, we work with a lot of different brands in the cannabis industry, just like we work with a lot of different bands in the music industry. The model is really similar, and uh, it's just been really exciting to watch it take off. This is a great, Andy. Let me ask you a question, if I could. Given the current political climate that we live in and how you know the, the issue of access to, to the ballot box is, is a very hot-button political issue right now, as we see going on in a number of states, I, you know, my experience with you guys is you've always been fiercely uh, nonpartisan with the goal of getting anybody, you know, getting registered voters to vote. Has this friction that we've been seeing, has that worked against your efforts? Has it helped your efforts? What can you tell us about that? That's a great question. And thanks for asking, Larry, because I think kind of what you, you, you allude to is that this has become a very partisan fight. And we find ourselves in, in sort of two contradictory spaces. One is that we are fiercely nonpartisan. We're not taking sides. Our message is vote. Doesn't matter who you vote for, vote. Then we see that there are actors who are acting against the thing we believe in, which is voting. So it's like, how do you not take a side when it's the thing that you are, that your mission is all about? Right. But if you dig down deeper, what you can see is that there is room 
for bipartisan dialogue. And there's also it's never been more important than ever. And a really good example that got lost that didn't get the headlines is last week, the state of Kentucky passed bipartisan legislation that was nearly unanimous in the Republican Senate and Assembly and signed by a Democratic governor. And they added early voting. They codified various things that make voting more secure, more consistent across the state and easier. And we say, like, look at that example. And if Kentucky can do it, your state can do it, too. If you look on our, the headcount social media today, we have a little graphic that says if Kentucky can turn corn into bourbon, that doesn't mean your state can. <laughs> if Kentucky can pass bipartisan voter legislation, your state can. So there is still room for that bipartisan piece. But it's it, there's no question that there's a war going on there out there in democracy. And we are going to fight that war. But the way to solve that is not one side beating the other. The way you need voting rules that are set by both sides so people can believe in and trust the process. And that's what ultimately brings more people into the system. And whether it's cannabis voters or Grateful Dead fans or whoever it is, we really do believe that when the sides get together and have reasonable dialogue, that's when democracy grows. That's what we're fighting for. Yep, very good. Always uh, seeing your tables and booths up at Red Rocks, and I think you do a great job. What um, do you do to, to vet the people who sign up to vote to make sure they're legitimate voters, they're eligible to be voters? Well, I, I want to give a shout out to our Colorado volunteers, especially Marjorie Ellis, who was probably at one of those tables that you saw. And at Red Rock, sometimes they have us all the way at the top. So we have to walk all the way up there and people walk. I and mean, we still register a ton of voters at, at Red Rocks. You know, in terms of like vetting, like that's really more of a state's job. What we're doing is giving people the form to fill out. Um, and we don't really have any issues with, uh, you know, we, we, we're very, very careful about how we work with the states, um, but it's up to the individual voter. I mean, you're, you're swearing an oath when you register to vote. You're swearing that you're a citizen. Um, you're swearing that you're over 18, uh, unless you're a state where it allows you to register sooner than that. Um, you'll be 18 by election day, that kind of thing. So we're, our bigger concerns more so are, well, you know, vetting volunteers is really important. And we've had a really great run. Sometimes I think we're really lucky. We've had thousands and thousands of people volunteer for headcount. And the number of people who did the wrong things was very, very few. You know, sometimes people drink and things like that and get kicked out. And that happens like maybe once every two years. Um, we haven't had anybody try to like use the voter system incorrectly. Like that's never happened um, with our volunteers or anything like that. And ultimately, like anything in the Grateful Dead world, it's about community. It's about a shared ideal. And there's always going to be, you know, somebody who is a little less ready to contribute. We'll put it that way. But our experience is really positive. Our experience is that, you know, at every Grateful Dead or Dead and Company show, we have a headcount booth. And we also have something called Participation Row, which is where all the nonprofits come together. We organize that with an organization called Reverb. And I tell you, I mean, we've had hundreds and hundreds of volunteers, thousands of fans. We give away free pins. People can win a guitar signed by the band. And it is the most wholly positive thing we've experienced as an organization is being out on the road with Dead & Company. So uh, I really, I, I, it almost restores your faith in humanity, how much of a good run we've had. Let me ask you this, if I can, really fast, Andy. Um I understand what you're saying about, and I love the idea about, you know, getting people out there to vote, especially by emphasizing the importance of the impact they can have on cannabis laws in this country. 
My question and my concern is, is that as these states one by one start to go legal, do we lose the cannabis voters? In other words, how do we keep them engaged uh, and, and part of the program after they've accomplished what their primary goal seems to be? Yeah, it's a great question. And the answers are that once a state legalizes, the battle just begins, really. And there's so many things going on. For instance, right now, there's a lot of talk about potency caps and limiting potency to 10%, which is below what a lot of medical products are. We just had a, an election in Grand Junction, Colorado, which for the first time is going to have retail recreational because it passed on a local referendum. Um, right now, you have the U.S. government or the Postal Service banning, banning the mailing of vape cartridges. So there's always issues that are happening. And in my home state in Jersey, we just passed legalization, but it's at the individual municipality level. So my next job is to lobby my local mayor in my small town and be like, hey, this would be great for the town. It would be really great if I didn't have to drive very far to get cannabis. <laughs> so that'll be my position. My very sophisticated political view is I don't want to have to drive very far. So, you know, we got to make our voices heard. And it gets down to like the power, grow our power, grow your power is kind of our slogan. And it's like, we know we're everywhere. Deadheads are everywhere. Cannabis users are everywhere. More than 60% of Americans support, you know, adult use legalization. So we just got to make our voices heard. And there are so many opportunities to interact with elected officials. When you have that opportunity, say I'm a cannabis voter and you're a constituent. And that they start to hear that, it becomes powerful and, and it creates this accountability. It's like, I don't want to piss off 60% of my constituents. I know my constituents support that, support cannabis. And we've got to be as vocal as activists in any community. We have more numbers than most. So if we are vocal and we're informed and we're registered and we're voting, the world, the, that arc bends in the direction we want to see it go. Hey, so Andy, uh, the Grateful Dead for years were always very nonpartisan themselves. They never took a position vocally about almost anything. And, uh, you know, as far as like foundations, the Rex Foundation was really the only thing they got involved in for a long time. How did you uh, convince Bob to, to join your board and get involved? And, uh, you know, because it's kind of stepping away from the comfort zone of what they'd done previously or any members had done previously. Uh, and obviously, once Bobby Weir's on, on board, then it obviously makes dominoes fall all over the jam band community. So can you tell us a little bit about the impact and kind of how you got to him that way? You know, I wish I could say it's because of my charm and intellect, <laughs> but it had nothing to do with me. It had to do with that at the time, Bobby's kids were really young. Um, Chloe and Monet were really young. And Bobby went through something where he felt more invested in the future of the world than he ever had. And it's really beautiful. I mean, Bobby's a beautiful person. And I want to say that because, you know, I, I've had the privilege of getting to know him. And, you know, sometimes there's a public persona and there's a private persona of someone. And I can honestly say that Bobby is one of the kindest, most altruistic and most egoless people I've ever met. And particularly in the music world where those are not qualities that a lot of people have. And nothing against the music world, but, you know, we know there's a lot of ego in the music world. And, and so Bobby is a wonderfully refreshing alternative to that. He's a very easy person to just be around and a very easy person to get along with. And he went through something on his own where he said, you know, I care about my kids. I think his kids were really young men and I want them to have a better future. And this was Headcount started at the height of the Iraq war. I kind of started when George Bush was president. And I think a lot of us forget 
that the country was extremely polarized then too. This is not a new thing. And so Bobby was really personally engaged and personally invested. And then I think that's where Headcount did a good job of keeping Bobby invested and getting Billy involved and Mickey and Phil. And that's like our whole community. Uh, Pete Shapiro's played a big role in that. Um, Matt Bush, who's Bobby's personal manager, who's on our board as well. So I, I really, I'm very grateful, excuse the pun, that Bobby has stayed so involved and so vocal. And uh, it's a blessing every day. It really is. And is that the uh, the shy Bobby Weir is contrasted with the my love is bigger than a Cadillac Bobby Weir right out there on the front of the stage blasting out to the uh, that that's my image of him forever is that you know him on that line just out there on the, the spotlight beaming down on him you know the rock and roll legend I love it I love it it, it really is and and you know I always try to take the time to kind of pinch myself and one of the things that I really love about Bob is that he's a living witness to history. You know, Bobby was there. Bobby was at the acid test. Bobby was at Woodstock. Bobby is, you know, Bobby, the life that Bob Weir has lived through those eyes and what those eyes have seen. And then what has emerged is a person who is kind and and giving and cares about the world. And um, it, it really and, and the, the folks around him, I think, do a really good job. I, I want to credit also the, the the management teams of all of the living members kept them alive through COVID. And let's just take some time. They are all living treasures and they're all at the age where they're high risk and they were very well protected and very smart. And like the things that I know people went through so they could practice and play music as the year went on. And they're all vaccinated now, I believe. And um, it's like, you know, hug, hug somebody in, in the Grateful Dead, like in her family, because they really did step up during this time. So we have another tour and we have a playing in the sand and we, we know we have to hang on to this because we know they're not getting any younger and there will be a day where we don't have four and there will be a day when we don't have any. And I hope that's a long ways from now, but I really, I feel a lot of appreciation to the people around them and the work they did to keep them healthy through this, this very trying time. Yeah. I think uh Shout out to uh, to Greg Seuss and Bernie Cahill and Sherry and the whole team at Manages uh, Dead and Company for just doing a great job and, and keeping those guys uh, ready to go back out on the road afterwards. Yeah, and Red as well and, and others. And, um, and you know, I just another thing I would say when it comes to cannabis is that is something that the band members all do have in common is they, they believe in this cause. And so when we came to them with Cannabis Voter Project, all four of them in, in one way or another were really supportive. And um, Bobby in particular, I mean, Mickey, you know, who has his own line and, and Billy is just great. You know, like Billy, like we have a we have a sign. In fact, I'm wearing a shirt. Let's see if you can see it. It says I smoke pot and I vote. And uh, we have like a sign to hold up in a photo. And Billy took that sign and wrote a lot. <laughs> so yeah, he's hanging out at Woody's house in, uh, in Kauai and just smoking joints and playing poker all night. <laughs> Can I just say that I, I don't know any of them. I've never met any of them. So, you know, it, it's all just this persona I've I've imagined for them over the years. But I think that even back in the day, you know, if I had to pick one member of the band who I just really like to hang out with, I think it would be Bill Kreutzmann. I really do. I mean, he just seems to me to be that guy who just has that kind of fun personality to always be around, always enjoying himself, always just enjoying life. I, I love that about him. You know, a, a good buddy of mine is Benji Eisen, who co-authored Billy's book. And before Billy and, and Benji connected, it was put in the world that 
Billy needed a co-author who he could hang with on the beach and do various things with. And, uh, and, you know, Benji and him spent a year together just recording Billy's stories. And that book is really wonderful deal. I recommend that. You know, to your question before about, like, the dead had never kind of ventured into these waters. They're not political or they weren't over the years. I think all of these guys have found a great balance of not being preachy, not being the kind of standard Nick activist, but really understanding what's important to our time and what's important to their community. And I think it really gets to cannabis and the, I mean, what has happened in the last decade in terms of legalization is incredible. You know, we didn't think we'd see it in our lifetime and it all came together and it's going to, it's going to happen. Like federal, we are one step closer than we've ever been every day. And we're going to see a bill come out. The, um, you know, Senator Wyden, Schumer, and Booker are, are putting a federal legalization bill out very, very soon. And it's going to be an uphill fight because it's going to need 60 votes. And not every Democratic vote is guaranteed, much less Republican votes. But like in 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 Colorado, you had a very pro-cannabis Republican, Cory Gardner. He's not in office anymore. But this, this is a nonpartisan issue. But I'll tell you this, right. and this is really important. To get that federal legislation over the finish line, is going to take one of the biggest massive grassroots movements in history. And it's going to take cannabis voters coming out of the closet, so to speak, and <laughs> saying loudly, I'm a cannabis voter and you're a constituent, and speaking to senators and identifying those that are on the fence and making it politically ad advantageous for them to come out on this issue. So it, it really, the, the true fight for federal is going to start very soon when this legislation comes out. You know, you're talking about it, it's supported by the, the you know, the, the, the head of the, the Democratic Party in the Senate, Charles Schumer. It'll almost definitely get supported by Biden. So, you know, as a movement, we're a few votes away. And what we want to do at Cannabis Voter Project, we're, we're not about any individual piece of legislation. We don't take sides in individual pieces of legislation. What we're about is making, uh, it's having people make their voices heard. And there is a moment coming where if we all band together and we get loud about this, we're so close and the momentum is clearly with us. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when, but when could be 20 years or it could be this year. So we've got to get everybody registered to vote. We've got to get everybody speaking out on this issue and we've got to get everybody informed because we're more powerful when we know what we're talking about. So I think that we have a lot of great things ahead. I can see that you know, in, in this year and next year in particular, at concerts, there's so much ability to engage and be informed. And we've got to make sure that everybody knows about Booker, Schumer, Wyden, because it is going to change the world if it gets passed. And only voters can get it there. Cannabis voters. Yep, very good. Just to swing it back to the members of the Grateful Dead, how's Phil doing? He's 81 now. Is he going to get out this summer and do some shows, you think? Well, it's a better question for my buddy Peter Shapiro, who is always working with Phil and is kind of Phil's personal promoter. Um, you know, well, it's certainly my understanding that we haven't seen the last of Phil. And we've even seen Phil perform some, like, you know, backyard sets during COVID um, 
he contributed some terrific music to a, a live stream that we did um, with Live for Live Music earlier this year. So I I am optimistic. I don't think we're at the end. And Phil is, um, he may be 81 years old, but his spirit is younger. So I think, I, I don't think we've seen the last of Phil. So Andy, it's hard for me to have you on this show and not tell a story that kind of ties the Grateful Dead together with um, cannabis, which is uh, five years ago, you called me up right around this time in the spring and said, hey, you know, Dead and Company did their New Year's show in 2015. And uh, if, you know, Larry and Jim, you guys probably remember, they the, um, a couple of people got into a joint and flew over the audience and threw out, um, threw out roses and threw some other stuff into the audience. Well, that joint uh, got donated to Headcount, and Andy called me up and said, hey, Rob, I'm, I'm going to try to auction this thing off. Would you start the bidding process just so I can have an opening bid and, you know, let's get this thing going? I said, yeah, I'd love to. So, uh, so I threw a bid out. I thought nothing of it. And about a month later, he calls me up. He goes, hey, man, we never really got this thing off the ground. You won. <laughs> I said, you're kidding me. He's like, yeah, so can you write, make the check out to Headcount and send it my way? And I was like, all right. So over the next couple of days, you know, um, we were trying to figure out how to get the joint. I think it was in Mickey's uh, storage unit in Novato, California. We we're trying to figure out how to get it back east. But I'm calling every person I used to be on tour with going, guys, you won't believe this. I just bought the joint that was you know, being flown over the audience uh, at Dead & Co's New Year's. Anyway, fast forward about a month and Andy had the, uh, the, the honor of calling me back again and saying they'd changed their mind and they were going to keep the joint. And I was like, what are you talking about, man? Like, I was going to put this thing in parades. I was going to, you know, have it in Fourth of July parades. I was going to have it, you know, like, I was going to, you know, mount it onto a golf cart. Like, we were going to put it hanging as a, as a, um, like a Calder mobile in, in, in the office. I had like a thousand things I wanted to do with this thing. But that was, you know, for me, the first time that really married the fact that the Grateful Dead were super pro cannabis. And I was so stoked at that time that, you know, for a brief moment, um, I thought I, I had the joint. Um, and Larry, that was when you and I first met. And I told you the story of going, I just bid on and got the, uh, the, the, the joint, which um, to this day is still one of those really funny stories. I wish I had the joint. So, Andy, I got to ask you, where's the joint, man? <laughs> you know, I, I don't know. I'll tell you what happened. What happened was that. Um, the auction, the online auction page wouldn't allow us to do it because it was a cannabis reference, which is kind of ridiculous. But that was where we were at. And then we wanted to just get it to you. And uh, it wasn't our choice. I would have loved for you to have it. But, you know, I think we can probably try to dig that up again. It was um, sort of on the minds of a lot of people back then. And now I think sometimes five years later, things have a whole new life to them. But uh, it was super cool. I mean, it was like they were really like it was literally a flying joint. It would have been an awesome thing to own. And uh, I want to get it to you. Sometimes like, I don't know, a lot of decision makers in these worlds. I, I, I think that they had really wanted to auction it. And then when they couldn't, they sort of it was like, all right, we'll just hang on to it. Didn't they have a burning joint on uh, closing Winterland at the show at Winterland? They he, you know, and now flying in on a burning ember of marijuana, and they they had somebody coming in, yeah, on a joint at that show. So you know, maybe they repeat it every few years. It works for me. Well, I think it's I think it's Bill Graham. Yeah, that sounds right. At a New Year's show I was at, I remember that. So it was a reenactment. Mm-hmm. And it, it all gets to like the history of it all, and and that's the thing that that I always like get excited about is that we are. It took so much. Like, let, let's bring this back to Steve Fox, who I didn't know personally, but I know the contribution he made in the world. And and I was, I when I heard what happened, I I searched his name in my email inbox, and I found an email from 2006 that he had sent me saying, "Hey, I heard about Headcount. We're trying to get cannabis legalized." 
in Colorado, can we do some things together? And it really shows that this was this was someone's life work. You know, somebody put their entire life into this work to get cannabis legalized. And when we think about the dead and the just the over 50 years now, the 55 years, it's just it's humbling. It's humbling to realize that we are on the tail end of social movements that are older than all of or at least older than me. And uh, <laughs> and um and that people have been working toward these things, and whether it's marijuana legalization or voting rights um, or LGBTQ rights, let's remember the moment at Fairly Well when the double rainbows appeared over the stadium, and it happened to have been the day that the Supreme Court had legalized gay marriage. Like, what a, what a historic moment. And so here we are every day. There's so much progress that's happened that we can take for granted. And when we think about, you know, the link between a flying joint one year and Bill Graham, you know, 40 years before, at a certain moment you pull back and say, wow, this really is bigger than any one person. It's bigger than any one time. And we are the beneficiaries. I mean, to be able to drive in your car and, and not worry that you're going to go to jail because there's a joint in your ashtray, we're starting to get used to that. But this is... There, for black Americans in states that haven't legalized, this is still a daily reality that you can get thrown in jail for a joint and with a cash bail system where if you don't have money, you can get stuck there. And this isn't a theoretical. This is the reality. So I think for all of us as dead fans, as cannabis users, we have to always think about what is our what is our small role in the much bigger plan and how do we move that forward? And being a cannabis voter, being vocal, encouraging other people to vote, being informed. Um, check out cannabisvoter.info where just just know who you know where your congressman stands on this. I didn't know my congressman, who is a Democrat, is very anti-cannabis. Josh Gottheimer in uh, in Jersey, one of the most anti-cannabis Democrats. I didn't know that, so I read our own website. And now anytime his people hit me asking for money, which of course they do, I just hit back and it's like, I'd love to see your stance on cannabis evolve. And so we, we all have this opportunity to be these little players in social movements that really, really span decades. And I think that's right. And, and to your point, and something we're going to say that's going to be amazing, I just saw yesterday the New York Police Department came out and said they are not going to arrest people for smoking in public. And I, I mean, to me, besides the you know convenience factor for those of us that like to smoke, think about how many stops of blacks and other people of color that will take out of the system if they're not just going to pull them over because, hey, man, you're smoking a joint. Get over here. I'm going to arrest you. All of a sudden, a major means that they use to make an initial contact with someone possibly for arrest is because they're smoking openly. Now they're coming out and telling us we're not going to bother you for it. That's really incredible. And we're used to like, you know, a place like Colorado, it's still, you know, it's not, you can't just smoke on the street. And in New York, right. you will, as of the laws now, you will be anywhere where cigarette smoking is legal, marijuana smoking is legal. And that's a real game changer. Imagine, you know, before a dead show or a fish show outside the garden, it's going to be oh a my big God. smoke fest. Um, but yeah, to the point, and I think as deadheads, it's always healthy to point out the place of privilege and the role that white privilege plays in our culture. Because if 20,000 people, 20,000 black Americans showed up to an event with, with, with drugs, you'd have probably about 20,000 people thrown in jail, you know, 
And while deadheads, in some way, we can feel solidarity because we know, like, if you put a Grateful Dead sticker on your car, you might get pulled over. You're more likely to get pulled over. So in some ways, we can empathize and we've experienced what black Americans experience. But in most ways, we have no idea. And we still are in a place of white privilege. And we still, the things that we collectively have, quote, gotten away with, we wouldn't be getting away with if, uh, if we were not white Americans. And so I think it's always really, really healthy to look at these things in that context and just know how sometimes we, we get away with a lot. And now, finally, through so many people's hard work, it's not getting away with it. It's actually legal and it's our rights and we can take care of these rights and be more creative and more sympathetic and all these things, because that's what I don't know. That's what cannabis does to me. It definitely makes me a more creative person and a more bigger thinker and things like that. And um, I think that, you know, all of these things are hard earned. They really are. Now, Andy, those are great points. Um, and uh, you put it a lot better than I, I might have, because I've been thinking about, you know, this massive immediate sellout of a band that's, as you pointed out, 55 years old in some respects. And what a large part of history they are, as, as you were saying. And I've been thinking about that when I couldn't get tickets to play in the stand because it sold out in three minutes. So, um, but yeah, what a, a large part of uh, the landscape they still are. And you put it very well. It's funny. I was flying into uh, San Jose today. And as I did, one of the first things I saw as an identifying landmark was Stanford University. And I thought back to like the Perry Lane days of the original, you know, acid when Kesey lived, you know, on Perry Lane and then looked up the hill to La Honda where the dead used to you know, play the shows, uh, you know, sort of late night where they all congregate there. And Reyes was looking at that area. The, the plane turned. And the first thing I saw was Shoreline Amphitheater, which was basically designed for the Grateful Dead to play when every other city was banning the dead that Bill Graham wanted to make sure they at least had a home venue to play at um, all the time and as the plane banked further around i flew right over levi stadium and i pretty much watched you know 50 years of, of kind of grateful dead history just in this one city where it all sort of started I mean, san francisco gets a lot of the credit but the san jose palo alto area was just so pivotal as well uh between mountain view and santa clara everything in the, in the history of the grateful dead so to kind of sort of, before i even did this podcast today just thinking about the evolution of that band from 1965 until today was put in really great relief in, in perspective uh, as I just landed in San Jose this morning. So it's super cool. Before we let Andy go, because, you know, it's rare we get a guest, you know, it's once in a while we get someone on that has lots of fun stories. I got to ask, man, growing up with Brownie, um, what, what was that like? You know, obviously anyone that's a Bisco fan out there knows that band's somewhat nuts. Um, but to actually have childhood stories of running around with that guy in high school, uh, I, I got to think that, you know, there's probably tons of stuff you can't say, but just, uh, you know, quick synopsis of, of growing up with Brownie. Uh, that's fun. You know, when, when I, uh, when I met Mark, so Mark went to a high school called Poly Prep, which is, uh, the like top, like private school in Brooklyn. And I went to a public school. And uh, I met Mark through a mutual friend when we were in high school. And Mark was like, um, he's not the Mark Brownstein that people know today. And then he went to Penn and uh, got into the music. He and I, there was really a moment where we became close. Like we hung out a bunch because of a mutual friend. But where we became close was at the Fish Show in um, at Sugarbush in 1995. The Disco Biscuits had just started. And I had just, my buddy Lockhart Steele and I had just come up with the idea of doing a book about fish called The Farmer's Almanac. We had 
it was that weekend we really started formulating the ideas. And Mark and I hung out and we 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 just had this common vision. You know, we'd hung out, we'd grown up together, we were friends, but we had never sort of melded around the things that were most important to us. And it was becoming like music and the community and the jam scene that probably didn't even have a name back then and all that. And I remember like realizing that Brownstein and I were just like, let's just say we were, our brains were pretty scrambled and like kind of came together. And, um, and from there, like one of the great privileges of my life was was to have a real front row seat for the evolution of the Disco Biscuits and watching a band go from a bar band that mostly played covers and had a few originals to a really successful touring band that has had an over 20 year run of touring big rooms nationally and watching that come together and watching the Biscuits community come together. And and watching Burko take off as well. Burko. And here's something cool to know for people who don't know the Biscuits inside and out. There are so many people around the Disco Biscuits in that inner circle who've done incredible things. There's a guy, Steve Martosi and Jared Hecht, who started an app called GroupMe. And then Martosi started, helped start um, something called Splice, which is a music like sharing and um, uh, sampling app. There are so many people like that in the inner worlds of Disco Biscuits. Dan Berkowitz has started CID Entertainment. So people think of the Disco Biscuits as this like kind of like, you know, druggy band, very edgy, people get in trouble. I'll tell you what's really going on. The smartest people I've ever met, you'll find backstage at a Disco Biscuit show, that inner circle has accomplished so much. And I'm probably forgetting other people. There are great artists and great um, entrepreneurs. And as I said, and all of it. So I, I'm really grateful. And Mark's been an amazing partner in growing, growing Headcount. Um, he was the, the chairman the, uh, until very recently when Pete Shapiro took over. So, you know, we have a lot of crazy stories, but the craziest story of all is that we pulled this shit off. Like, you know, we were talking years ago, 25 years ago, he's going to start a band. I'm going to write a book. We want to like, we wanted to make a contribution to this scene. We saw this scene come together and we loved it. We loved being a part of it. We both wanted it not just be, in the passenger seat, but be adding something to it. And what he's accomplished musically, um, what Lockhart Steele and, and my buddies accomplished with the Farmer's Almanac 20 years ago, and then what we've been able to do with Headcount, it, it's just really, we're really blessed to have this community to be able to do these wacky things in. No, I think that's absolutely amazing. And I, I love your history with that. And, and we didn't even have a chance today to touch on the Farmer's Almanac, unfortunately. Uh, because notwithstanding the fact that we are the Deadhead Cannabis Show, uh, Jim and I, and now Rob, since he has joined us as well, we, we have a strong fish side as well uh, that we really like to explore. And in fact, I will even take 30 seconds since we do this all the time with the dead to throw out as I was driving uh, back to my office today to get ready to tape this. I was listening to uh, Fish Radio and they were uh, Jonathan Schwartz, of course, who you just mentioned before, uh, was spinning a show. His first show, he said, 28 years ago in St. Louis, my hometown, uh, April 14th. 1993 um, and it was just a tremendous show in the middle of it they they they, in the middle of a tweezer they threw in a a cover of the atlanta rhythm sections cover of the tune spooky and uh uh, some other stuff was mixed in there that's very uniquely fish and you know and, and as i was listening to it 
uh, on the one hand, I was kind of disappointed that it, I, I lived in St. Louis nearby at the time, and I and I wasn't into fish yet. But at that point, my all my time and attention was still devoted to the dead. I didn't have the bandwidth for another jam band. Um, but what I love is that they're still here, and they're still around, and they're still playing these shows with the same energy and the same everything that they put out 28 years ago. And you know, we're, we're going to get the second stage of life with them that we were deprived of the dead when Jerry passed away and uh, very, very excited about that. And so just a you know, quick shout out to our fish fans as well. Uh, yes, Jim. So I have a disco biscuit story that we can maybe wrap up here with. Um, so back when our older son, Matt was in high school, he was really into the disco biscuits. Well, he's 33 now. So this was, he was 13, 14 years old and they were playing up in the mountain above Fort Collins, Colorado at the Mishawaka Inn. And back in those days, I don't think they'll let you do it anymore, but you could pitch a tent right on Highway 14 and basically uh, busker camp for the night. So we brought a tent and I set up our sleeping bags with my son, Matt, and he brought his, his friend, same age. His name was Matt, too. And we had a great time at the show, but we managed to lose the friend, Matt. And so I said, what do we do? What do we do? We couldn't find him anywhere. And I said, Let, let's just go back to the car, back to the tent. I bet he'll find us. So we get back to the tent and the hour, you know, one, two hours go by. Finally, our tent door unzippers and there's the other Matt. And he was just oh, so, you know, glad to see you. So it was just that um, basically that was <clears throat> the other Matt's first experience at a concert. Um, but that was my Disco Biscuits story. You know, those I was at those shows, Jim. They played Mishawaka twice. Mishawaka is my favorite place to see music. It is a tiny amphitheater on the side of a rushing river and i went tubing all day i mean that that place is awesome and i remember and, and if you're a biscuits fan get those shows there's like a basis where they like work mishawaka into the song i mean th that is those are some of my favorite disco biscuits memories is mishawaka and uh, i think it's 2001 i believe is the year um that would make sense. And they did it twice and then they opened for phil at red rocks I think yes they the did same same run so yeah, it's it's all very interconnected, and uh, I'm glad you found Matt. I'm glad both Matts, I assume, are thriving, and because some people, you know, some people never come back. So that's good. Well, that's a good way for us to end. We're we're definitely coming back. We're going to come back next week, and next week we're going to have um uh, uh the show's theme is going to be talking about Brent Midland joining the band, which happened on April twenty second, nineteen seventy nine. So we're going to celebrate uh, Brent's joining of the Grateful Dead, um, and. Uh, Hopefully we can have you back at some point too, Andy. It was uh, great having you on. As, as Larry said, we didn't even get to touch on uh, on some of the other things you've done in the industry. But before we uh, go, we do want you to make sure you plug uh, Headcount again and how people can get in touch with you. And before I let you do that, um, everyone out there, please do support Headcount. It's an incredible organization. Uh, if you're a cannabis voter, absolutely support it. The same way I advocate for people to support Students for Sensible Drug Policy and Marijuana Policy Project and National Cannabis Industry Association. There's other supporting groups that, that help the industry as well. And Headcount is certainly an ally to us. So thank you to all you've done. And uh, please do support the organization. Well, thank you, Robert. Yeah. And uh, check out headcount.org. Uh, check out cannabisvoter.info. If you want to support Headcount, a great way is to volunteer. Um, we don't have a lot of events right now, but we will as soon as the pandemic ends. You can go out and register voters. Obviously, we welcome donations. Um, but really what we're about is people. And so we want people involved. 
Um, and cannabisvoter.info, please do check it out. Just, you know, what everybody can do is like look at look up their state and know where your state elected officials stand. Because I as I said, I learned a lot. I had no idea that my congressman was the one who was like standing in the way of a lot of things. So um, you know, let's be informed, let's grow our power, and let's go to Mexico and see Dead and Company. That sounds great to me. I, I, I love that idea. Um, and it's funny because you guys are talking about the Disco Biscuits and I, you know, I'm lost. I, I, I know who they are. Obviously, I've heard their music before. My kids like them a, a little bit. My, some of my cousins, are, their kids just are totally wild about them. And I just feel like that got just one too many layers out. You know, there was the dead. And I smoke, a big, smoke a big joint, Larry, and listen to helicopters. You'll, you'll figure it out. But and, and I will. But here's my problem. Right. And the problem is, is the dead would say, where does the time go today? April 14th is the what do we say? The 49th anniversary of the fourth show of Europe 72 at the Tivoli Concert Hall in Copenhagen. It was the first show on the continent of that tour. I'm going to be listening to that all night. So somewhere along the way, I will eventually make time to work in the Disco Biscuits. But that's a good starting place. So thank you. Well, welcome. When you're ready, Larry, we'll be there for you. Open arms. I appreciate that. Okay, well, Jim, any parting words for us? No, over and out from Longmont, Colorado. Great show, everybody. So we'll catch you all next week. Thank you very much. Uh, same thing. Everyone have a great week. Uh, Andy, thank you so much for coming on today. And uh, hopefully we can get uh, you to convince Pete Shapiro to come on with us one of these days as well or some of the other guys. But we'd love to have uh, some other guests that are in the office you share. Uh, but thank you so much for, for spending your afternoon with us. And uh, until next week, everyone. Thank you, everyone listening today. I do want to give another shout out to my son, Matthew, who still unfortunately uh, is finding himself in a hospital in Boston, but he's doing much better and we're hopeful uh, he will be out soon. So uh, shout out to him. He's a big fish fan and I'm sure he loves to talk about that. To everyone else, uh, thank you for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Uh, take care, be safe and enjoy your cannabis responsibly. listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hi, I'm Gary, and I invite you to discover the Cannabis Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on a Canadian's cannabis culture. I would be the Canadian, and my cannabis passion and culture has been building for five decades. I share that passion for this wonderful plant in every episode, through conversations with cannabis advocates and enthusiasts, stories about the ever-changing legal environment, and some hands-on testing of product in a segment I call Cultivar Corner. The Cannabis Podcast, a Canadian's cannabis culture, one token at a time.